Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show, where we interview fighters and firebrands on the political and cultural battlefields. We all know that crime has increased over the last few years thanks to a political and ideological assault on police departments nationwide. This rise has affected black Americans more than anyone else, but liberals refuse to change course. Yes, 2,200 more black Americans, for example, may have been killed in 2020 over 2019, but racism courses through the veins of law enforcement and needs to be curbed, they say. I always wonder where these supposed racist cops in places like New York and Los Angeles were educated, since in America, I know, racism is about the worst possible sin one can commit, a fact drilled into the heads of virtually every child in the country. But be that as it may, liberals claim that far too many blacks die at the hands of police and something needs to be done about it. The truth is that liberals are correct. Most victims of police shootings are black or Hispanic. But there's a simple explanation for that. And here to talk with us about it is Heather McDonald, perhaps the greatest and most honest expert on crime in the country. She is the author of several best-selling books, including The War on Cops, The Diversity Solution, and The Burden of Bad Ideas, and a contributing editor of City Journal. Heather, welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Elliot. I'm glad to be on. And if I could just quickly intervene to correct something you said, it is not the case that Blacks and Hispanics are most of the victims of police shootings. That's just one of the many misconceptions that I'm not surprised you hold and the rest of the public holds, because if you only followed the media, you would think that, in fact, the police are only shooting Blacks and to a lesser extent Hispanic. And you would also have a wildly inflated idea of how many such police shootings there are. In fact, uh, whites make up at least half of all the victims of fatal police shootings every year. Blacks make up about 25%. And I'm going to just guess here that many viewers would imagine that Hundreds, if not thousands, of Blacks are killed by the police every year. In fact, the numbers average, since we've been tracking pretty detailed, about 250 Blacks are killed a year by the police. The vast majority of those are armed and dangerous. Okay, so thank you for correcting me, because it's been a few years since I read your book. Otherwise, I would have had the correct number. But I guess I simply assumed, because one of the fascinating parts of your book to me, and I've been a conservative my whole life, but even conservatives don't know these basic facts, which is, you write that I think 97% or 96% of violent crime in New York City and basically every other major city in America is committed by blacks or Hispanics. So just in my mind, I assumed, well, if 95% of major violent crime is committed by blacks or Hispanics, it makes sense that 95% of police shootings would have a black or Hispanic victim. Well, that's an absolutely appropriate assumption, Elliot, because you at least are on to the crucial issue in all anti-police discourse, which is the benchmark problem. Here is how the mainstream media, uh, Joe Biden, the Democratic Party, managed to convince American citizens that policing is racist. They get their hands on police activity data, whether it's arrest ratios or ratios of who gets stopped. 
and they compare those ratios to population data. So, for instance, in New York City, blacks make up about 53% of all the subjects of pedestrian stops that the New York Police Department makes. Blacks are about 22% of the population. So here's what the ACLU does. Here's what the Democratic Party does. It says, aha, look at this. Blacks make up twice as high a proportion of stop subjects as they do the population ratios. Therefore, by definition, the police are racist and they are engaged in this awful racial profiling. Well, as you imply, Elliot, that is the wrong benchmark. The police do not determine their deployment. They do not determine their tactics based on population ratios. They go where the crime is happening. They go where people are calling 911, where shot spotter technology is saying, here's where the drive-by shootings are happening. When you look at that, you find out that Blacks, though 22% of New York City's population, commit about three quarters of all drive-by shootings. Uh, And we know that not because of the racist police, but because that's what the victims of and witnesses to those drive-by shootings who are overwhelmingly minority themselves tell the police in the rare instances when they're actually cooperating and not silenced by the anti-snitching ethic. If you add Hispanic shootings to black shootings, as you suggested, Elliot, you account for about 97, 98% of all shootings in New York City. What does that mean? It means that when the police are trying to respond to a drive-by shooting, to these insanely brutal, insanely barbaric shootings that have been gunning down Black children in their backyards, in their cars, in their birthday parties, at their front porches, they will be called almost invariably to minority neighborhoods and being given the description of a Black or Hispanic subject. The police don't wish that reality. It's a reality that is forced upon them by the sheer reality of violent crime. So in a certain way, the number of wrongful shootings of Blacks should be much higher than it is based on what you're saying. Right. I was the cause of a perfectly valid academic paper being withdrawn because I had cited it verbatim in the Wall Street Journal, and I'm viewed as so toxic within the academic community because I'm willing to speak the truth about policing that uh, my mere citing a paper caused its authors to retract it. This is James Cesario, who retracted a study he'd published in 2019 showing that when you take violent crime rates and homicide rates into account, the seeming disparity of police shootings, which If you just look at population ratios, blacks are about two and a half times more likely to be shot than whites. That's only based on population data. If you take violent crime rates into account, the disparity flips and it turns out whites are two and a half times more likely to be fatally shot than blacks by the police. So yes, in fact, and you know, Mayor Michael Bloomberg, he got in a lot of trouble by speaking what was also the truth, which was saying that whites are actually overstopped in New York City compared to what their crime rates would predict. Whites make up about 9% of all pedestrian stops in New York City, even though, as I said, they commit 
you know, around 2% of all shootings. I just want to clarify about it's the shootings or drive-by shootings that are 97% Black and Hispanic? I'm using shootings and drive-by shootings uh, synonymously. I mean, there's it's basically just these insane gang shootings where mostly it's happening. Somebody is in a car or gets out of a car, shoots wildly across a sidewalk or into another car, utterly indifferent to the threat to life. Interesting. There aren't so many just regular, you know, someone shooting another person individually in a house or something like that? No, that's very rare. Interesting. Did not know that. Okay. Um, One of my favorite statistics in your book, The War on Cops, concerns the disproportionate number of men in prison. Liberals often claim that our criminal justice system is racist since most Americans who are in prison for violent crime are black. In your book, you respond in part that one could argue similarly that our criminal justice system is sexist since there are 10 times more men in prison than women. Can you elaborate on this point? Well, it's just that we're willing to put up with disparities if they seem to affect males negatively and we're rather rational about the fact that there are real disparities in criminal offending Homicide statistics are the gold standard of all criminal data. And just as those data show that males are disproportionately among the criminal population, they also show, sadly, that blacks are way overrepresented among the criminal population. And, you know, I've been speaking about New York City, but let's go to the opposite coast. These disparities exist in Los Angeles as well. Um, In L.A., Blacks are 51% of all robbery suspects uh, whose race are known, even though they're 8% of L.A.'s population, making Blacks in L.A. 37 times as likely to commit a robbery as whites. And Blacks are about, as far as homicide goes, they're 34% of homicide suspects, and whites are 4%, making Blacks 31 times as likely to commit homicide as whites. So you cannot, again, the police cannot respond to those disparities without generating the disparate stop and arrest data, which the ACLU will use to try and discredit the police as racist. Right. And I think you say, like, what do you want the police to do? If someone says, calls, like you said, 911 says, someone's in my house robbing my house. He's a black, tall person. Do you want the police then to look for white people afterwards? It doesn't make any sense. All right. I want to ask you a question about sort of the history of how we got here, the high black crime rate, because it wasn't always this high. And also the black out of wedlock birth rate, which some people argue contributes to crime, also was not nearly this high. It used to be 50 percentage points lower in the 1960s, as you know and you've written about. Some conservatives blame white liberals for these developments. They argue that these liberals relaxed societal restrictions and expectations at precisely the moment that blacks needed these restrictions and expectations the most. For example, when blacks rioted in the 1960s, whites did not immediately quell the riots. Instead, they indulged them. And when blacks started competing for previously inaccessible college and job positions in the 1960s and 70s, whites did not treat them equally. Rather, they treated them like little children and gave them preferential treatment. If you could roll back the clock and magically control society at the end of the civil rights movement, what would you have done differently? And do you think it would have made a difference? Well, Elliot, I totally agree with you that the 
encouragement of the oppositional culture that eventually came out of the Black Power movement in the 60s was precisely the wrong thing for achieving racial equality. Famously, Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote his insightful, a prescient report on Black family breakdown, which he delivered to President Richard Nixon, warning that the then 23% out of wedlock birth rate for Blacks would stymie any further progress in civil rights and closing economic achievement gaps because too many young Black males were being raised without fathers, without any ability or any familial means of developing deferred gratification and impulse control under the tutelage of a father. Okay, so Moynihan was saying this is catastrophic when the out-of-wedlock birth rate was 23%. Today, about 71% of Black children are born to single-parent households. So given that, uh, it's very, very catastrophic. Yes, the, the Great Society, the welfare programs, the glorification of welfare, the removal of any stigma from use of food stamps, from use of, of welfare was disastrous. That having been said, I think it's somewhat of a conservative safe harbor to say that all the problems began for the first time with the Great Society. If you read W.E.B. Du Bois on Philadelphia in the 1910s, 1920s, there's always been a much, much higher Black crime rate, a much, much higher Black out-of-wedlock birth rate. Du Bois despaired at what he saw as the sort of loose sexual mores and promiscuity of Blacks. But it was by no means at the level that, that we're seeing today. As far as racial preferences and lowered standards, you know, I have to say the the degree of utterly hateful, incomprehensible, from this vantage point now, incomprehensible white treatment of Blacks concentrated in the South, but not exclusively there for so long, just heartbreaking, gratuitous cruelty and nastiness was such that it would not have seemed completely implausible right at the start of the federal legislative tsunami to try and catch up to the civil rights actions that had been going on in the black community starting most heavily in the 1950s and 1960s to sort of say, well, maybe we initially need racial preferences. It turns out that was a wrong strategy from the very beginning, because as we know now, when you catapult somebody into an academic environment for which he is not competitively qualified, you are not doing that person any favors. It is very hard to compete academically when your peers have more academic skills than you do. And so you're setting up the so-called beneficiaries of these preferences, whether they're sex preferences or race preferences, you're setting them up to fail. So yes, we should have said we are going to maintain 
colorblind high expectations of achievement and start from the ground up trying to create a culture of academic involvement in Black communities rather than lowering standards to meet Blacks. Because once we started down that path, it's only gotten worse and worse, and it has done nothing to close academic achievement gaps. What would you say should be done now at this point? Well, I would say, frankly, that the main impetus has to come from within the Black community. There has to be a culture change that gets rid of the anti-acting white stigma that says to groups that are academically failing, here's who you emulate. You emulate Asians, you emulate Jews. You say, we don't want standards to be lowered. We're gonna not just meet those standards, we're gonna beat them. We are gonna be focused intensely on academic achievement. Right now, the black truancy rate is twice as high at least than the national average. In California, it's about four times as high in certain grades as it is for whites. If you're not in school, you can't learn. Parents have to start monitoring their children's attendance. They have to start monitoring their children's homework, whether they're taking tests, whether they're taking their textbooks even home to study. Yes, I mean, I suppose it's up for all of us, but frankly, we have been trying for decades to close these achievement gaps. It is not for lack of trying. We have spent billions on income transfers, on Title I education transfers. Yes, of course, there's the conservative bromides about loosening the power of teachers' unions, vouchers, school choice. Those are all fine. But without change from within, there's not going to be enough radical change to actually close those achievement gaps. I want to ask you about your background. Before I do, I just want to quickly mention one of the best lines I found in in your book, The Burden of Bad Ideas. I think it's like the opening sentence. You say, you ask a woman, what would you do if you didn't get these food stamps and WIC checks, these various government programs? And she said, well, I would get married. (laughs) And and that's a great illustration of the power of government incentives to either behave correctly or incentive, unfortunately, to behave incorrectly. Um, Okay. You were featured in a 2008 book called Why I Turned Right, which contains the journeys of 12 baby boomers who abandoned liberalism as they got older. In explaining why you became conservative... You offer two reasons that stick out in my memory. One is deconstructionism, which I believe you were studying intensely at Yale, and the other is homelessness. Can you discuss these two? First, briefly, what is deconstructionism for those who are unfamiliar with it, and what led you to go from revering it to disdaining it? Well, I hope your listeners want to dive into the some of the most bizarre reaches of academia Deconstruction was a literary theory that was in the ascendant in the 1970s and early 1980s in literature departments. And it purported to be a theory of language and literature uh, that contained some very, very bizarre propositions. And I don't expect anybody to understand these because they're, they're not understandable. They're totally counterintuitive and counterfactual. But deconstruction held that 
there is no such thing as the human subject. We are just sort of plays of language. Books are only about themselves. They're not about human experience, human pathos, love, loss, longing. They're only about their own failure to represent reality. It said that the fact that language is made up of a bunch of arbitrary signs because there's no innate connection between the word cat and the furry animal uh, using your cat box in your apartment, that because we use arbitrary signs to communicate, we therefore can't really ever communicate. I mean, none of these propositions make sense, but they were presented as something very powerful and a taboo knowledge about the nature of language and the nature of, of the human self. And I was ignorant and naive enough to be attracted to this because I'd always been interested in language and representation. And so I wasted far too much time in my undergraduate years trying to master these theoretical writings that were written in the most jargon-heavy language by such authors as the French pseudo-philosopher Jacques Derrida or at Yale University, the Belgian literary theorist Paul Deman. And I revered my professors because they seemed like they were the source of knowledge. And for me, knowledge is eros. I fell in love with most of my professors because I yearned for knowledge. And then I studied linguistics in Cambridge University in England, and I realized that everything deconstruction was saying about language was completely lunatic. As far as social welfare policy, homelessness and whatnot, yes, I'd been a liberal by default. I grew up between the coastal elite cultures of elite academic environments, whether in Los Angeles or Massachusetts or, you know, other New England places. And though I was not particularly political, I just unthinkably absorbed received liberal wisdom. When I started doing journalism for the first time in New York City in the 1990s and would go to welfare offices and homeless offices and talk to the clients, what I heard was something I'd never come across before, which was basically the conservative critique of big government and people saying, you know, they should have done this welfare reform years ago. These welfare mothers are so lazy, they can't even change the light bulb in their apartment. Who's telling me this? Welfare mothers. (laughs) Uh, So I was getting a very different perspective on the ground than the one you would get from the New York Times. And so I learned my conservatism from the ground up by going out and reporting on the Giuliani revolution that was transforming New York City so much for the better in the 1990s. If I recall correctly, because I don't have the book with me, I saw it a few years ago. You write, I think, that there was an actual program either in New York or elsewhere where homeless people could get a free apartment, and yet almost all of them refused the offer. And I think you write that that something clicked in your head that maybe the problem is not just society. Maybe the problem is actually the homeless people themselves. Well, that's not an old statistic. That's true of every outreach program from the 80s on forward. Uh, you can offer vagrants housing till you're up a gazoo and they'll turn it down. They want to stay on the streets. This is a lifestyle choice. They've got drugs. They've got often tents being delivered to them, food, clothes, 
pizza sometimes delivered to their encampment. So this is the acid test. You know, if they really are homeless, imagine somebody who actually is homeless. This house has been knocked down in a flood or a fire or a landslide or a, you know, tsunami and somebody offers him shelter. Is that person going to say, oh no, I'd rather stay here on the cold in the street? No, if, if you're really homeless, you're going to accept shelter. So the idea that this is a housing problem is completely a farce. Just getting back for a second to deconstructionism, is that just something you mentioned in the essay, or was that part of the reason why you became a conservative, actually, your disillusionment with it? I would say it's more of a reason why I didn't become an academic. As far as why I became conservative, I think that it was more, I even when I was still thinking in a more liberal way, I hated racial preferences. I have always believed in meritocracy. I think that the only criterion for any kind of job or position in a university or hiring in medical schools or to science labs, the only relevant criterion is, are you the most qualified? And racial preferences and sex preferences are now ubiquitous. So that turned me away from the democratic liberal playbook. And then also, again, seeing the reality of big government programs. And then at the end of the 1990s, I started writing about crime and policing. And that also worked for me by doing on the ground reporting to explode the left-wing myth about biased policing. Last question, and it relates to what you were saying about meritocracy, because I first became fascinated with your work some 20 years ago when I read your book, The Burden of Bad Ideas, and came across a chapter on the New York Times, 100 Neediest Cases. This annual feature appears before Christmas, I believe, till today, and appeals to readers to remember the poor during the holiday season. You trace the evolution of this feature in the New York Times and use it as a window into the changing morals of American society. I know it's a whole chapter in your book, but can you briefly share what you found in your research? Yes, it's it's one of those articles that's based on the just excitement of doing archival research in newspapers. It is a simply stunning experience to read newspapers from the turn of the 20th century up through the mid to halfway through uh, 1960s practically, we forget that the New York Times was not always uh, a battering ram against American culture and Western civilization. It considered itself an upholder of that civilization. So I started reading this feature that began in the 1920s, if I recall correctly, in the New York Times called The Neediest Cases, where the Times would profile various destitute widows and orphans to raise money for their assistance and used a whole set of categories that would be absolutely toxic and suicidal if used today by any aspiring establishment institution, such as distinctions between the deserving and the undeserving poor. And the New York Times cautioned its readers, we are only going to 
give money to, and you should only give money to the deserving poor, those people who are helping themselves. Uh, these are the widows who's have lost their husbands through tuberculosis or the children who have lost both parents through tuberculosis or industrial accidents. And the eldest daughter is putting herself out at age 14 as a seamstress to try to help her younger siblings who are themselves perhaps now trying to get jobs. And the Times cautioned its readers, don't subsidize those people who aren't helping themselves and and was scornful of criminals, of winos who are just out there begging and that are not trying to get, get sober. But as I looked at this neediest cases pitch, decade by decade, into the 30s, into the 40s, and the 50s, it turns out that it was a remarkable mirror of the evolution of American culture. And in the 50s, you started seeing therapeutic elements come in, and the Times started talking about juvenile delinquents as being the helpless products of a culture that stigmatized them or didn't understand them or parents that didn't understand them. And then in the 60s, you started to get a explicit rejection of the distinction between the deserving and undeserving poor, a celebration of single parents, a declaration that we should make no value judgments between the poor that are married and are trying to raise their children and single parents. And in the 70s and 80s and 90s, it got worse and worse. The idea of married parents fell out completely and any kind of moral judgment that there are certain types of behaviors that are more functional and will help you join middle-class society at greater rates than dysfunctional behaviors like teen sex, out-of-wedlock, child-rearing, drug use, gang behavior. The idea that one dared make those distinctions was explicitly rejected by the New York Times. So I had a hunch when I started doing this research, and it turned out to be a, I have to say, extremely concentrated and untapped way of looking at the growth of the therapeutic culture in the United States over the 20th century and the loss of faith in bourgeois norms. Okay, I know I said it was the last question, but I, I hate only complaining because we on the right, conservatives, we're always complaining, saying how t terrible things are. I often think we need to focus more also on what needs to be done. So very briefly, how do we go back? How, how do we reclaim our glorious Western tradition? Never apologize, never, ever characterize our inheritance through the phony, trivial lens of race and sex. Speak up for beauty. Encourage students to read the great books. If you have children, please read them the great classics of British children's literature that are filled with joy and imagination and wit, whether it's Wind in the Willows or the A.A. A. Milne Winnie the Pooh books or Edith Nesbitt. 
These are great works. Fill your children's or your grandchildren's ear with language, with great language, with beauty. Take them to hear classical music. Take them to museums. My heart goes out to parents today that are trying to stand up to this absolute terrifying deluge of hatred for children that's coming in the form of gender ideology, of castration ideology, of trying to destroy childhood innocence by premature and cruel exposure to knowledge of sexuality. If you have to do homeschooling, reach out to other parents. It's very difficult, I know. Do research on classical education, but never back down, never apologize, never say that to be white is to be proof of inherent evil. And I'm saying this as somebody who's been doing a crash course recently in America's racial history and feel that, to be honest, conservatives have whitewashed that history, but we are not the country that we were. Today, the reality is black privilege, not white privilege, even though it is the case that until pretty darn recently, we were a white supremacist country, but that doesn't mean that the left's solutions for that are at all correct. They are all wrong and will increase racial hostilities and perhaps even lead to a race war. And if I can just make a pitch, Elliot, I have a book coming out in April that will address all of these questions called When Race Trumps Merit. It's published by Daily Wire and will be available for pre-order in February. Interesting. I didn't know Daily Wire is publishing books now. Yep. They're part of their entrepreneurial spirit. I think we need more of that. Um, Okay. Thank you so very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Congratulations on the book and continued good luck in your work. Thank you, Elliot. All right. That does it for us. Quick announcement before I go. I hope to soon be releasing a free ebook of every single opinion article I've written over the last 15 years, virtually every single opinion article. I'm going to leave out one or two for various reasons. If you would like a copy of this ebook, send me an email at editor at one versus 450.com. Again, that's editor at one vs 450.com. Again, editor at 1vs450.com. Send me a quick email. Just let me know you would be interested in getting that free ebook. It's going to be, let me see what it is right now. It's going to be something like 210 pages. I'm also going to be selling it on Amazon, but if you want a free PDF of the book without having to pay for it at all, send me an email and I will send you a copy when it's ready. That's going to include. 27 articles on general subjects, many of them about Trump, but also, let's see, one article on self-esteem, another article on Black History Month, another article on the 75th anniversary of the movie Casablanca, another one about the Me Too movement. So articles on all sorts of subjects, on masks, lockdowns. And then I have 33 articles on Jewish subjects, and that really spans the gamut. Some of the titles of those articles are The Case for a Well-Rounded Education, Should Everyone Learn Shas, Who's Rendering Women Invisible, Is Jewish Parenting Lax, What Would Mayor Kahana Do, Does Israel Need America, Tzitzis In or Out, and What About the East Bank? 
And then I'm also including five book reviews I wrote. One of them actually is on a book by Heather McDonald, the one I was just talking with her about, The War on Cops. Another one is a, by a book by Rory Jonathan Sachs. Another one by Geert Wilders from the Netherlands. Another one on the biography of Rory Mayor Kahana by his wife, Mrs. Libby Kahana. And the fifth one is on volume nine of the collected writings of Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch. All of this in 210 pages and all of it for free. Just send me an email. All right. Have a great night or a great day, depending on when you're listening to this podcast.